Welcome to Outsider Within, Critical Conversations in Education, a podcast dedicated to those whose voices are often silenced and whose unique knowledge and resources provide insight as well as practical solutions in the field of education. We will talk with leading experts who share their own experiences and expertise in navigating critical issues using their unique perspective. In this episode, our guest is Dr. Gregory Hutchins. He is the founder and chief executive officer of Revolutionary Ed LLC, a nationally recognized educational leader, anti-racism activist, and published author. He is the first executive in residence at American University School of Education and plays a key role in elevating the school's anti-racist administration, supervision, and leadership certificate program. Dr. Hutchings has over 20 years of experience as a college admissions counselor, teacher, school principal, superintendent, and college professor. Welcome to the program. We are so glad to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're going to have a good time today. To start, would you tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work? Yeah, well, first off, I mean, when you gave a lot about me, about my professional self, um, I do have to say that I have been married for 20 years to my wife. And thank God she has stayed with me this long. (laughs) Because I always say to become a superintendent, I became a superintendent at 35 years old. I had to make that my priority, right? So it was very selfish. And I, I, my wife and I, we've been to marriage counseling and everything. I can say it publicly now. Um, But she stayed by me, which is pretty awesome. We have two wonderful kids. Our daughter, she is 17, and our son is 12, and we're just trying to make a legacy for the Hutchins brand for generations to come, what I hope. But a little bit about my work, let me tell you, I'm just so passionate about this um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism work, is what I call it, DEIA. My life was changed completely when everybody got to witness the murder of George Floyd in 2020, right? We were going through this global pandemic with covid And then we had the murder of George Floyd and everybody was trapped in their homes and couldn't get away from it. So they had to pay attention. I knew in that moment that the rest of my life is going to be devoted to making sure that I am dismantling systemic racism in education. That is the work that I'm doing. I just released my first book, Getting Into Good Trouble at School, A Guide to Building an Anti-Racist School System. I wrote that during the pandemic and being a superintendent, folks. Like, I mean, that was some crazy stuff. We all were going through mental health challenges during the pandemic, and I had nothing, anything that I did was wrong as a superintendent. So I needed to have an outlet, and actually writing my book was my outlet. Now, I had to do it at three in the morning. I couldn't do it during the day because I was working, and my wife was like, you're not going to have no laptop up in this bed every night because I'm <laughs> you have to be on your phone. So I literally wrote my entire book on my phone, whole book. That is impressive. In what ways do you see the current social and political climate impacting education? Well, I mean, look at what's happening right now. It's so many crazy things from Florida. I mean, look at Governor DeSantis, who has said we will not have AP African-American studies in the Florida high school. Like, for what? And he's saying to bring back something else. How can you bring back another history, right? My thing is, is like, we're bringing you historical facts. How is that somebody's opinion? And what I think right now our biggest challenge is, is we are seeing that folks across this nation are seeing that education is the key and the pillar to us having 
some success in America and for us to change this racial narrative. So people are so afraid that they're trying to discredit public education, right? They're out to make sure that we are silent and that we are not able to speak our truth and for our young people to know their heritage and their history. Um, it's a tactic that this is not new. And this is why I say it's so important. I'm, I was working on a presentation today that I'm doing next month for African-American lecture series. And I was going through my research, going through like just the different stages from slavery to Reconstruction to Jim Crow, the civil rights. And I just think of if our young people were able to really hear and learn about how resilient we are as a Black race. And I'm talking about, and this is for all kids too, but as Black people, how we were property to finally being human beings. And if you think of the amount of time that we have been enslaved and fighting against oppression, it's more than we have been free. Yeah, yeah. And not to mention three-fifths of a person for a long time. Three-fifths of a person for a long, for a very long time. Right. And then you add, you know, things for black women. It's, the, it's that intersectionality that, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw talked about quite often. It's even worse. Right. It's even more, um, you know, severe in regards to, to the issue. So I'm just I'm just blessed that we are all sane as a black race with all that we have been through. Hats off to every single one of us and shame on America not allowing us to speak our truth, the good, the bad and the ugly. But who wants to have to look in the mirror and see they're wrong? But you know what? I know that is the first step to being, you know, at peace and to having some progress. And anybody who goes through a crisis in their lives, you got to first admit the issue and the problem and hit it head on. And America's just not ready to do it. But I'm going to keep fighting for it. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, I think, it's Jarvis Givens. I think that's the author of Fugitive Pedagogy and was talking about, you know, just what you were talking about. We have to have covert operations all our lives. Um, we've had to plan. We've had to navigate these different spaces in order to really hold on to our power and our voice. And even during this Jim Crow era and how educators had one book in their lap that was covered by the table, but they were teaching from their lap. And so when someone walked by that was trying to um, trying to censor them, Mm -hmm. then they would hurry up and switch and they would easily be able to switch back up to what was on the board. And so just always having to do that. And we're still going through that now with, you know, the state of Florida in not being able to teach and cover what needs to be covered. Right. And just critical race theory. I mean, people, they have misunderstood critical race theory. Right. I mean, I even didn't understand initially because, I mean, that wasn't something that I was that wasn't in my, you know, in my space, even in my vocabulary throughout my educational career initially. And I remember a few years ago, they were like, is Alexandria City Public Schools is when I was superintendent in Alexandria. They were like, are, are you all implementing critical race? Theory? I'm like, absolutely not. But then I started learning about critical race theory and I was like, oh, shoot, well, maybe I am a critical race theorist. <laughs> right. Because in our work. Our strategic plan was about racial equity. It was a commitment to racial equity. It was a commitment to us learning our history. And one example that we did when I was superintendent was, you know, everybody knows about T.C. Williams High School. Remember the Titans, the movie with Denzel Washington, right? And he portrayed Coach Boone, who was my teacher, because I'm a graduate of T.C. Williams, too, um, by the way. But he was my teacher. And everybody knew this story of Alexandria 
and how, you know, we won the state championship and that brought our black and our white children together and then we became integrated, right? Well, that was the Disney story. And what I wanted to make sure we did was that we were sharing our true history here in Alexandria. And we let, allowed our students to lead the way and they educated our community on who Thomas Chambliss Williams, who was superintendent from 1930 to the 60s. He was a white superintendent of Alexandria City Public School. He received a telegram from President Kennedy in the 60s, right? To he, he asked for Alexandria to be an exemplar for America and to integrate, like to be the example. And Thomas Chamberlain Williams said, over my dead body, black and white children will never be in school in Alexandria, right? And when he retired, they named the first newly built high school after him. No one knew that history. And once people learn that history, now it's called Alexandria City High School. So it's now a conversation of if we don't educate people, if we don't inform them about why things need to change, it will never change. And that's why people are trying to censor and stop these conversations from happening because what will happen is then folks are going to say, oh, we got to do something different. Oh, and now I know this. I've been down this road before. We They did this, you know, 30 years ago or 60 years ago or 90 years ago. Because the game is still being played the same way from white America. And if we learn our history, trust me, we can change that game. And that's why folks are, are getting scared. It's really interesting in the police shooting in Memphis, how the complexities of our history and the moving forward are sort of coming into play together in that it's interesting how everyone is on board that those five police officers were fired immediately. And I saw that all five of these officers happened to be Black. Yeah. Now, imagine that. The Black officers killed the Black man and they fired them immediately. However, historically, that's not what happens. All of a sudden, we can fire those officers because what they did was inhumane. But most of the times, it seems when they are white officers, they go on administrative leave with them. First, yes. until everybody turns up the heat. And no one has said anything about this. So I bring this up in terms of the history that you brought up in Alexandria Public Schools. That's right. So here we have this interesting dynamic where we have another police killing murder of a person of color and all of a sudden everybody is on board with firing police officers before they've had their day in court it's, it's a double standard and i think it's this it's been a double standard from the beginning 1619 when we were brought here as late right it has always been a double standard for black indigenous people of color and their white counterparts and i think that what white America does sometimes is they want to make examples. They want to make examples out of us instead of making examples out of the white people who are really starting and teaching this culture. It's more of a white culture. And we think back and I always say like policing and this is, you know, I always say I'm not going to get into whether we should have SROs in schools or not because it, really, it depends for me, right? I, I'm, I can't go one way or the other. It depends on the circumstance and situation. But when we think about policing, policing came out of a slave mentality, right? That's where it was derived from. When yeah. we no longer could enslave people, we began to have policing and jails 
and you know all of these people working out in fields um and these chain gangs and all these other things right so this is a white culture that has always been around and unfortunately black america is also being indoctrinated into some of these systemic racist practices so, you know, I, I say that it, it's unfortunate that we right now, I think, are being used as an example. But there are so many white examples prior to this that they get their day. I mean, you can even look at um, shooters, right? These, you know, these like mass shootings that occur. And you're thinking, how does this person even make it back? Well, you get people who are being killed. Breonna Taylor, they get killed walking through the door in their house. Yeah, not doing anything wrong. And oh. think about the, the the white person who shot up something, and the officers drove through the drive through at McDonald's. Oh, at the church shooting, yeah, South where Carolina. he was hungry after he killed all them black parishioners. Like seriously, a black person can breathe wrong, and they are shot and killed. And it's that, and it's that simple. Our lives don't matter. It's the simple fact that we have to have a Black Lives Matter movement. That to me is insane. That's crazy. We have to do that. We have to tell America that our lives matter. And it is real when, you know, I think of the fact that my wife and I, we have to raise our children and talk about keeping your hand on the steering wheel when the police officer comes. Don't make any, you know, knee-jerk reactions to think. Like, these are stories that we are still telling our children. And it's 2023. You know we got to train our children up right. Because if we don't teach them these things, they won't know. They can lose their life. So we have to carry that burden. What makes me so angry when we talk about like adverse childhood experiences and don't get me wrong i think that they're important like divorce having a parent who's incarcerated you know being raised in poverty what needs to also be an adverse childhood experience is racism and it goes beyond childhood and it is not being acknowledged of the social and emotional impact the negative impact that that has on black indigenous and people of color every single day and in spite of all that, we're still expected to do more and to not have a fair chance. It, it's just crazy. And it's sad we're still fighting this fight. But I tell you what, I'm going to keep fighting as long as I possibly can, because if we don't do it, who will? Would you consider yourself an activist? And how does your activism manifest? Yeah, I mean, I consider myself an activist, an advocate, an ally an agitator. I mean, I got something. It depends on the situation. I feel like my activism, it started very young. And I think back to when I was in 10th grade at T.C. Williams High School. Um, and I was 14 or 15 years old. And I recall not being allowed to be put in honors classes. And my counselor told me that I didn't have the grades and I didn't meet the criteria. But I saw like in honors, the kids were they were doing projects. I saw people laughing. I saw the teacher talking. And in my class, the teacher was reading newspapers. I'm like, I'm trying to go to college. I need to be in that class. My counselor said, no. Well, I did a petition. I said, well, I'm going to do a petition. And I went to my principal, Mr. Porter. And I said, Mr. Porter, your students believe in me taking honors. And he was like, you can be an honors if you go to all that. You know? <laughs> now, the thing is, I got a C in that honors class. <laughs> However, because I didn't have the foundational skills prior to, but I survived, right? And I learned how to do that. And I stayed in honors until I graduated. I graduated with advanced diploma and it changed the trajectory of my life because Mr. Porter gave me a chance. My voice was power, right? And um, I think that that is when my activism started. That's when I realized 
you know what, if I talk to the right people, if I get the right people on board, and if I stand for something that I truly believe in, I really can make a difference. You know, whiteness functions where they are um, clueless or they claim to be clueless as to how their actions are situated um, and and how their impact affects black and brown students um, and people. And then when you bring it to their attention, like the Black Lives Movement, they then still don't want to accept it and they try to explain it away. Well, right. what about blue lives matter? What about white lives matter? Like you're not understanding the message. Like we're making it as explicit and clear as possible, but your whiteness still does not allow you to really hear what needs to be heard. That's right. And, and it's that battle that we constantly fight. Um, and you telling your story about having access to honors classes. That's what we're still struggling with in 2023. And that's unfortunate. We have to actually have meetings. We have to go back old school. Like I said, covert meetings and, and actions. Go back to the churches, go back to our spaces and have these conversations so parents know they need to advocate for certain classes for their students before middle school. Because well, even in middle school, your trajectory can totally change by the classes in which you have access from the get-go. I would say even that you learned something in school from the standpoint that you took the agency to create a petition to get your classmates to agree with you. And then you went to the principal with that. But with the way that the society now is trying to crack down on teachers teaching children about civics and about their um, opportunities and their rights, how are they going to know that's even an option for them to do? I think people are afraid because they feel like it's going to get out of control. Our young people right now, they are some powerful folks. I mean, you got to think of it, especially our um, our black, indigenous and people of color, because now you have representation. I'm so happy to see I was in the store the other day. I'm like, I see black people on all cups. I don't remember growing up seeing that kind of black faces on magazines in the grocery line. And it's not just Essence or Ebony or Jet. Hey, this is on all magazines. So think of what they're getting right. They're having now a sense of pride that America has never seen before. And it's beyond just black power. It's beyond just, you know, wearing our Afros and and what we want to wear. You know what I'm saying? It is now I have a confidence that you cannot break me, that I'm unapologetically black and I'm here and you need to see me and you need to hear me and I have a voice and I'm going to speak up and I'm going to do whatever the heck I want to do. And I love seeing our young people this way. I love seeing our daughter who started a black student union at her white Catholic school, right? For the first time. You know, I said, I wouldn't expect anything less because that's my baby. We raised her like, love your melanin, love your hair. You can come in and you need to have a presence when you walk into a space. Nobody should ever make you feel smaller or belittle you because you are a child of God and you also are a Hutchins and your purpose. So we're building her up. But America is afraid that our Black and our Indigenous people of color, especially our children, who are now having this type of confidence and also awareness about what's wrong. Um, But this is not a new day. Think of the civil rights movement. College students is what got us through that civil rights movement. 
So historically, education has run the spectrum from indoctrination to liberation. Well, you wrote a book talking about getting into good trouble. So I can make certain assumptions, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about that book? First, before I even tell you about the book, I think it's time in education for a revolution. Liberation? Nope. No, we are in a crisis mode right now. We need a revolution and we need to be unapologetic about it every step of the way. This was one of the reasons why I wrote the book. It's about making sure that there are practical steps. And it's simple. I mean, it's not simple to do, but it's simple to know. One, you got to know your history. If you don't know your history, how are you going to ever change tomorrow? Right? Two, you got to commit to racial equity, not just equity, racial equity. Race is the core of every single one of our disparities and challenges, especially in education. Three, you have to make sure you are dismantling de facto segregation. Our de facto segregation that's happening is coming through talented and gifted courses, through special education courses, through criteria to get into advanced level classes or a magnet program or the governor's school or whatever the situation might be. Four is making sure you're differing discipline from policing. What we are doing is we're treating children like criminals and they grow up to become Right. Where's the restoration? Where's the social and emotional support that these kids need? If a child is acting out in class, there's something happening to that child at home. Right. So let's figure out what's happening. to this. And, if, and it might even be happening right in your classroom. Right. So let's solve that problem. Five is making sure that you are engaging in strategic thinking and strategic planning. Everybody talks about their strategic plans and oh, we're going to do all these goals and we have this mission and this vision and this core values, right? But if you don't have strategic thinking, which is a skill, how are you going to be able to navigate these uncharted waters, especially if you're trying to dismantle systemic racism? You got to be a strategic thinker. You got to play chess, not checkers. And then number six is you have to make sure that you're being courageous and bold in your leadership, period. It is going to require everything of you to make it through this journey. And I look at the fact that we had to move from our house. I got threats. I had people put dog poop on my front steps. I had security walking me to my car, police officers at our board meetings, the board chair being threatened she's going to be killed, us having to have security so nobody can come upstairs in the building where I'm at. All of this is happening because of people being afraid. And a lot of times, and this is something a lot of people don't want to talk about, but I'm going to keep it real because I am unchanged. White women have been some of the biggest nemesis in regard to black excellence in America. And this goes back beyond Emmett Till, right? Mm-hmm. It has been a historical fact that yeah, white, white women, women have been leading um, this pack. And it's still happening today with the PTAs. And all of my biggest nemesis have been white women because I am not afraid of anybody, right? And I'm going to check you. Soon as you come at me crazy when I was superintendent or now, now it's going to be even worse. People dare not better come up to me now. I really say what I want to say, but I used to say what I wanted to say as superintendent. And the bottom line, what I would see consistently is culture that some, it's not all white women because a lot of white women are allies too. So let me just put that out there as yeah. well. because some white folks and I, and I was just even thinking of the simple fact, think of Howard University. Howard University, it was founded by a white man who was president of Howard University, who thought he was a general. He was called, like, he was like a Christian, and he wanted to be a pastor or a minister, and he wanted to give back to freedmen. 
and he, he opened Howard University. So we've had allies. I think back in 16, like 88, the Germantown Quakers did a petition to, for anti-slavery in 1688. That was the first one in America for anti-slavery. So we've had a lot of white allies. I don't want people to think, oh, white people, all white people, because it's not all white people. I'm speaking of it. And if you got an attitude right now, I'm speaking to you and you are hurting and you are scared. And all you know how to do is attack. And that is a strategy that has been used since 1619 when they brought us here from Africa. So I know I'm going to get on my soapbox and you didn't ask for all that, but I no. felt like it just needed to be said because sometimes we beat around the bush and we just don't say what needs to be said to people. And I, I do say that we have to make sure folks are leaning into their discomfort. That is how you grow. My job is not to make you feel good about yourself. My job is not to make your world comfortable. As a black man in America, I'm uncomfortable every minute of the day and I cannot change the color of my skin. So you being uncomfortable for a few minutes in my presence, that's your problem and it is not mine. You do not have the right to be comfortable. There's nothing in the law that says that you are required to be comfortable in my presence. And we have to, as black people, have to start owning our blackness and being extremely proud of it and making people hear, see, and pay attention to us. I think you started some good trouble on this podcast <laughs> on this day, Dr. Hutchings. So do you want to say something about your book? Yeah. So I would tell you, my book is, is out there. It's available. I always tell people, Amazon is great. Purchase the book on my website. I'm a, I'm a reseller of my own book, which is www.revolutionary-ed.com. I know it's long, uh, but if you Google Revolutionary Ed, it'll come up. I think if people really want a practical guide, it's what the book is all about. It was made to be practical, to be more general, so that it could be a teacher, it could be a parent, a school board member, a superintendent, an organization, a principal who wants to read this book and who wants to actually take some action. This is the book that's for you. And I also provide, I just developed professional learning modules that are aligned with the book. I'm going to be having a summer institute this summer. Information is going to be coming out in the next two weeks. It's going to be at American University, week-long institute for teams to come in and to really grow um, as educators so that you can be an equity warrior and go out here and take some action for this next generation of leaders. All right. Let us know if you need some help. Yeah, no, I'll let you know for sure. Um, you know, we just got it off the ground and it's going to be, very unique because um, it's not just about professional learning in these summer modules. Because it's in D.C. and being hosted at American, we're incorporating like the Black Lives Matter Plaza and Lincoln Memorial where Martin Luther King did his I Have a Dream speech and the National African American History Museum. Like So it's really immersing um, participants into this equity work um, so that they truly can become anti-racist educators. So what gives you hope? That's our final question. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is our young people. The simple fact that I see our young people being themselves. They're coming with their natural hair. They are advocates for African diaspora. They are advocating to be taught about their history. They are pushing back. You know, they're learning how to be protesters and agitators when needed in a very peaceful way. And that gives me a lot of hope you know, for, for our young people. And I think the biggest thing for me is 
when I actually get to see our biological children, my wife and I, when we get to see them stand up and even correct me, daddy, that was what you just said. That's not the borderline racist. Right? <laughs> my kids tell me that. <laughs> and that's in my own house. From the right? mouth of babes. And that gives me hope because they also can see kind of our wrongs and they know how to address it and they also know what to call it. Whereas we just have feelings growing up. They know what it is. They know what it's a microaggression, whether it's a bias. And I think that is what gives me hope uh, the most. So I'm looking forward to what the future has to hold. And I know for the time that I have here on this earth, I'm going to keep advocating and keep working to dismantle systemic racism in education because that is my area of expertise. I can't do it for the whole world, but you put it in education, then I'm the man to, to help make that happen. Thank you so much for participating with us today. We really enjoyed your conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Outsider Within podcast. We, the producers, are university teacher educators, and we know how hard teachers, administrators, and others who support public education work towards access and equity. We welcome your thoughts, comments, and suggestions for future episodes. Find us at criticalissuesineducation.com and be sure to follow us on social media. Yours in solidarity.